Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay back there? Yes? Okay, good. I'd like to begin this evening by sharing with you a story. Once when uh, the Venerable Ananda was staying near Rajagaha, he had gotten up very early in the morning, probably before sunrise, and gone to the Taboda hot springs to go soak his body in the hot springs. So there he was, hanging out in the hot springs, soaking his body, probably really savoring all those pleasant sensations that would come from such an experience. And he finish, finishes soaking his body, the, probably the, the sun is beginning to rise, he's drying off his body, and another wanderer, Kokanunda, comes up to him and says to him, it's still kind of dusk out, and he says to him, hello, my friend, um, who are you? I'd like to know who you are. And Ananda says, I, I'm a monk. And he said, well, what kind of monk are you? And he said, well, I'm a monk underneath this contemplative from the Sakyan clan, from, uh, underneath Siddhartha Gautama. And then the wanderer says, I'm wondering if I can ask you a few questions. I'd just like to know kind of your perspective, where you're coming from. And Ananda says, please, go ahead, ask, ask away. And so he says, how is it, my friend? How is it? He's saying this to Ananda. The cosmos is eternal. Only this is true. Anything otherwise is worthless. Is this the sort of view that you have? Is this the sort of view that you hold on to? And Ananda says, no, my friend, I do not have this kind of view. So the wanderer, Kokonudo, continues, well, do you have this view? The, the uh, cosmos is not eternal. Is this a view that you have the sense of only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless? Is this the sort of view that you have? No, my friends, I do not have this sort of view. And this wanderer continues with these kinds of questions, asking um, view after view. Do you see this as this one being the one that is only true and anything otherwise is worthless. Basically, he's asking Ananda, what, what is the view that you hold of the world? Please tell me. And again and again, Ananda keeps on replying, I actually don't have this sort of view. I think then this wanderer gets kind of flustered by this, maybe even a little irritated. And he says to Ananda, well, to me, it sounds like you do not know and you do not see. <laughs> Because here, I've just asked you if you had all these views, and you don't. So obviously, you must not know and you must not see in this deep spiritual sense. And Ananda says, actually, that's not the case. I do know and I do see. And then the wanderer says, well, please tell me, how do you know? How do you see? What do you know and what do you see? And Ananda says, I see this. I see that whenever there's a view where there's this sense of only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless, that's simply a viewpoint. And then he continues. He says, the extent to which there are viewpoints, view stances, the taking up of views, obsessions of views, the cause of views, and the uprooting of views, that's what I know. That's what I see. Knowing that, I say, I know. Seeing that, I say, I see. 
Why should I say I don't know, I don't see? I do know, I do see. What is Ananda saying here? He's saying that, that a view is just a view and I see it for that. And I know the causes and conditions that give rise to a view and how there can be a, a, a obsessions around views. Really the suffering that comes from being attached to views. And that's what I know and that's what I see, the suffering that arises around them. And you can probably hear simply through that knowing and seeing there is this freedom, the freedom from views. And then the, the ending of this discourse, which is in the numerical discourses, is quite interesting. Then after, after that, uh, the wanderer says, oh, well then, so what is your name, monk? And he says, Ananda. And the wanderer says, oh, I didn't know it was you. I didn't see that it was you. Oh, if I knew it was you, Ananda, you know, one of the disciples of the Buddha, I wouldn't have been asking you all these questions. I find this uh, a, a striking beginning and ending of this story. Because right? here we have this wanderer that's actually lost in views. And, and what does it prevent him? It prevents him from actually seeing the person who's in front of him. He literally can't see. He can't see that he's speaking to Ananda. He's lost in some view. Have you ever noticed this about how you hold on to views and I'm going to even broaden it to stories? You actually can't see, you can't touch, you cannot be intimate with the person in front of you. Probably not even yourself when you get lost in a view. And this is really what, what I want to share with you tonight is this exploration of, of how views and, and, and broaden it to stories function in our life. How to become free of them but also how to utilize them because the, the Buddha encourages us to actually utilize right view. So how does this, to, this work together? And, and I'm gonna, this is going to be a, a slower process. So I'm going to actually take two, to, two talks on this. I'll begin tonight and then next week I'll continue. And again, this is something that the not only Ananda is, is uh, mentioning, but the Buddha also emphasizes again and again this freedom of views. As he says in the Magandiya Sutta, after studying what people hold fast to, I do not say, this I declare. Seeing all views, but not grasping them and searching for the truth, I found inward peace. So seeing all views, noticing views, but not grasping them, and yet having this search for the truth, that's how we found inward peace. Not through the entanglement of view with views, but the freedom from them. And it's tricky because, yeah, we need to utilize views and stories. What did I start this talk with? How am I explaining this to you? Through story. Each time a word comes out of my mouth, it's actually a kind of story. It's a kind of view. And here we are. That's what we're utilizing to communicate. And yet, here is this, this, um, this encouragement from the Buddha and Ananda to be free of views at the same time. So I was thinking, let's, let's start a little bit with the bad news. <laughs> 
the entanglement with views? How do you, how do you notice this? How you might notice it in your life? And in particular, how do you notice it on retreat here? And again, I'm, I'm using this word view more broadly. I'll use th- this word view and story interchangeably. And maybe by now on this retreat, you might have noticed how these stories entangle your mind. Right? Maybe you leave a note for a manager or a teacher. A few hours go by. A day goes by. <laughs> no reply. <laughs> Have you ever noticed the stories that your mind can create over that simple act? Oh, they must have forgotten me. They don't like me. <laughs> this was a really complicated request from the, that I asked of the manager. They're, they're probably having to ask all the teachers in the kitchen, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? Right? It, it can be around so many different things. You have an interaction in your yogi job with another yogi. And boy, the stories can just proliferate. There's an announcement in the hall, something said in the morning instructions in the Dhamma talk. And, and the mind can have a heyday. There it goes off to the races. The complications. Or the interviews. You ever just notice what happens before an interview? <laughs> You'd be crazy making. And then after the interview. I just want to be clear. I would be completely lying to you if I said that I re- I, I've come to um, understand all this only through the interviews with yogis and not through my own mind. <laughs> I know what it's like to be on, on long retreat and it, it, the, the pull and the power of those stories and how there can be so much worry and then once we get more information when the note comes back or the next interview comes, all of it can fall flat. Can you relate to this, or am I the only one? Okay, phew. (laughs) And it can be in other ways. Uh, You might come on a retreat like this, and there, there can be this impulse, this impulse to figure out what's going on, to figure out what's going on in your life. Or the sense that maybe through this practice, I'm going to find the answer or the explanation or the view that's going to bring me contentment and bring me freedom. You ever notice this? Maybe I'll get the answer, the one answer. Maybe this is where I'll clarify what I should be doing with my life. And it, it, it makes sense, this wanting the answer, right? Here, here all of us are. We're thrown into this impermanent, unreliable world. And then that, that attempt to find something reliable through some concept, some view, some story, some explanation of it all. Have you noticed this? I think it's one of the things that drove me to practice. Well, one of the things uh, I was studying before getting into practice uh, kind of wholeheartedly was uh, philosophy. <laughs> I had this desperation that maybe through study and f- trying to find the answer, then I would come, at, come to peace. I have some bad news. It didn't work at all. <laughs> 
it drove me crazy, but I could feel that impulse. Sometimes we can see, I I think some, but not all, I don't want to make an overgeneralization, but sometimes I think the popularity of of things like religion and science um, uh, can become popular to us or they can have an attraction because they sometimes try to give us the promise of some answer, some explanation, some view that maybe I can rest in. So to soothe or to solace me from this unreliable world that we're living in. But it's just a trap. It's an entanglement. And yeah, there's a, there's a place to figure out what you're doing with your life. Please don't get me wrong. There's a place to figure some things out. There's a place for explanation. But how do you hold it? How do you relate to it in a skillful way? And then I'm sure you've seen it on the collective level. So right now, as I'm speaking to you, right now, there are so many people on this planet suffering from the wars and violence that are happening around fixed ideologies, around fixed views. Think of what's going on in so many different parts of the world. It's, it's all around how, how human minds are holding on to views and reacting. So much suffering. It, this is a real tragedy, what our minds do with stories, with views. What a beautiful thing, as I was saying in my previous talk, to, to do a practice that undermines something that, that gives rise to so much conflict and violence in this world. I also want to point out how subtle this entanglement and entrapment to view and story can be. And how this subtle entrapment has ramifications for our own lives and the collective. One story to exemplify this. This was, um, I'm just trying to do some math here. I guess uh, about... 25 years ago, I was, I briefly lived in London and it was, I was living in an alternative community for uh, the homeless. It was, it was a very cool community. It was, um, one of the ideas is, is that there was a basic need not being met for many of the people living on the streets and that was uh, community. So there was tons of services that you can find in London for the basic needs like food and shelter, but they, there has been a, a disregard that actually we need as, as human beings a uh, community. So there's this alternative community that I was in that that's what we were building together with people who had been living on the streets. And I remember one day, one of, the, one of these guys who'd been part of the community for quite a while had uh, finally got a, a place of a flat of his own. And we decided to take him out as a treat to, uh, out to eat, um, just as a, a, a local place to eat um, as a celebration. And we go into this place to order food and it wasn't until we entered into the place that I realized I had this entire blindness around the, the, this, this interaction or this idea that we had. And that was, I didn't take into account, he couldn't read. And as a result of that, when we went into this place to order food, I could see the anxiety in him of being a, in, in a culture, you could say, where there was this expectation. It was the dominant culture 
that everybody should be able to read. And luckily, I caught it in time to begin just to kind of say out loud what was on the menu that was up there in front of us all and kind of talk to him as doing that just to, to allow him a different way of navigating it. I was holding actually a view that I wasn't realizing. And it's a view that can happen in, in ways that we, we don't realize. Is, is kind of the sense of everybody's just like me. And sometimes this happens very much when, uh, uh, if there's some part of, of the way we are in the world where, where uh, we identify ourselves or really uh, people, other people identify us that's part of a dominant group. In this situation, part of the dominant group in, in terms of being able to read. So in terms of this privilege around education, all kinds of stories come around that that we're not aware of, that the views that really affect others. When I, don't, when I don't have this sense of seeing how my mind functions with these views. And they're there in your life, wherever you're kind of part of the dominant group, whether it be around, um, around gender, in terms of being a male, or it could be around gender of just having the luxury of kind of freely fitting into this binary system. It could be around race, being white. It can be around a, a socioeconomic class. It can be around ability. Well, I have the ability, I have the system that's actually not sensitive to certain favorite fragrances and chemicals. Boy, it can be so easy to forget that, 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 that not everyone's like this, that, that people have different abilities. Or it could be around seeing or he hearing or the abilities around locomotion. Around sexual orientation. Around your primary language. Around your nationality. Stories that can blind us to difference. that we end up overgeneralizing the other in actually ways that are quite harmful. Again, I, th I feel like this is the entanglement in views. This is the entanglement in story. And again, I think that's why the power of this practice allows us to begin to undermine that, to have it begin to have a sensitivity to that so that we can walk in the world in a different way. Because in, in some ways, when I'm not aware of those stories, I'm just like that wanderer. I'm lost in views and I actually can't touch the person in front of me. I can't clearly see the person in front of me. I'm interacting with them as if there's some idea, some concept. Have you noticed this in your mind? Can you relate to this? The biggest danger is if, if, we, if, if we realize that we're part of this one of these dominant groups and we don't think that there's any views or stories that we're holding on to that cause harm. That's the big danger if we feel like we're already free of it. And then a subtle level in our practice where we can see the, the role of, of, of the entanglement with views and stories. It can be so subtle. I think it's, it's pointed out with, from this uh, poem by the Zen poet Ryokan. 
He says, there is a bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. There is a bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. He doesn't tire of the bamboo grove because it's not it, it, it's not clouded uh, by the, the concept bamboo grove. It's a new experience each time. Have you noticed, are these minds of ours, they live, they live in a world of description and a world of story. And it cuts us off. It cuts us, cuts us off from an intimacy with the world. Have you noticed this around the breath? Yeah, it just feels like the same old breath. There's another in-breath. There's another out-breath. I know that one. But actually you don't. That's, that's the, that is the, the entanglement with view, with story. Oh, anger. I know, I know anger. I know that one. And actually that can be a trap with using labeling. Sometimes it can be that we're, we're labeling in, out. We're labeling anger. We're labeling sadness. We're labeling uh, fear planning and, and and what can be underneath that label is it's just the same old planning mind but it's actually not can you utilize labels if you're using them as a way of directing you towards a more intimate relationship with that of really seeing it or as carol was saying to recognize to recognize it accurately which is yes use some of that frame of these these quote-unquote views that we're offering you but as a gateway into something deeper. And I think this speaks too when we get a sense of how deep these views and stories are. The inspiring thing for me is, is, is what a powerful practice that we're doing. To cut through the concepts and the ideas that we have about the world and actually touch it. To be here with it. And and to me, it gives a different feeling of where this path is headed. A different feeling of, of how to understand liberation. I think Greg probably spoke to you a bit about uh, one way of of getting a sense of nirvana, one way of getting a sense of this freedom. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And I'd like to share with you another story, another view, not to get entangled in, but it might be useful. And it comes from uh, the Zen scholar Peter Hershock. He wrote a book called Liberating Intimacy. It's actually a fascinating book, kind of scholarly, but really quite fascinating where he uh, frames the liberative aspect of, of this Buddhist path in terms of this, this term intimacy. He says, Buddhist salvation is not a liberation of any individual you or me, but rather of intimacy itself. Again, Buddhist salvation is not a liberation of any individual you or me, but rather of intimacy itself. I find this compelling. 
that this practice is not about me waking up. It's not about you waking up. It's not about me being liberated or you being liberated. It's actually doing this so that intimacy itself can be liberated. So we do this together so that we can free intimacy from its entanglements with all of these things. To truly touch another, to truly touch our experience. The spiritual intimacy. And yes, I want to point out, it's, this is a dance that we're doing because at the same time, we are up here, the teachers are up here, are giving you a specific frame, a specific view to utilize, to see your experience through. For example, last night, Carol began her talk, which she'll begin, uh, continue with, around the Four Noble Truths. This is part of the wise view that the Buddha encourages us to utilize. One step further, again, how do you become free of use this entanglement? All these entanglements that I've been sharing with you on all these different levels. From the collective to the individual, from the subtle to the gross. And the, the Buddha offers us some similar similes, actually some rather um, popular sim- similes to help us understand this relationship to views. And he uses them around um, the Dharma itself and also, you could say, the life of the Dharma. One comes from the, uh, the, the discourse that's, that's called the water snakes simile. And within that discourse, there's also the, the popular uh, uh, simile of the raft, which some of you are probably familiar with. That the Dhamma is this, it's like a raft. We utilize it to get across the river to the other shore but then when we get to the other shore, we don't need it any longer. As as the Buddha says within that discourse, he says, in this way, practitioners, I have taught the Dhamma compared to a raft, compared to a raft, for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to. In this way, practitioners, I have taught the Dhamma compared to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to. And then in the Dhammapada, he gives a a beautiful simile around kusa grass, the simile of uh, how to hold it. So if you take kusa grass, any kind of grass, usually if you hold it tightly, right, if somebody pulls it out, you're going to get cut. And, and also kusa grass during his time was seen as a, a, a sacred grass. For example, there's a story in the Jataka tales of, what's his name, uh, Sotia. Actually, I think in the um, Huntington Museum, there's a, a, um, a, 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 sketchy, a sketch of this, of Sotia offering the Buddha a kusa grass for him to sit on on the, the night of his enlightenment. So something that which is, is sacred or that has the power to liberate us how do you hold it? If you hold it tightly, you'll get cut. So the same thing, it's utilizing the Dhamma as a raft to carry us over, not to hold on to. 
And I want to broaden that. It's not only the Dhamma, but it's really any view, any story. How do you utilize view? How do you utilize story to carry you over to the other side and not hold on to? Because story is so important, yet it can be entangling. So how do we learn this? How do we learn to utilize, yet not allow these minds to get entangled? How do you cultivate a skillful relationship to views, to stories? And in order to help us out with this story, I mean, this, uh, this question, I'd like to go into a little bit of the Zen tradition and to uh, share with you a passage from the um, uh, Zen master Dogen. And it comes from probably his, his, his most well-known fascicle or his most well-known essay, uh, the Genjo Koan. Genjo Koan, a lot of times it's translated as, I think actualizing the fundamental point is one translation. The, the translation that, that I appreciate is it's the issue at hand. So it's an essay really getting to the heart of, really, what's the issue at hand and how do we clarify it? And I want to share with you one passage um, from this that helps us, I think, clarify the issue at hand. He begins, he says, When the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. Yet when Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So I want to stop there just to really clarify this. So, so he's, he's saying, so when the Dharma doesn't fill your entire body and mind, when, when you're not really fully embodying the Dharma, you might think that everything is already sufficient, that everything is already complete. Yet when you are fully embody the Dharma, there's a realization that something is missing. So I want to point out, usually we think about this in opposite terms. So remember, this is Zen. It's always trying to pull the rug out from underneath you. <laughs> it, it's saying the way you understand things is always wrong. They always have a really good way of understanding Because usually we, we, you might think, if I'm fully embodying the Dharma, I'm going to understand that everything is already sufficient. I'm going to understand that everything is already complete. That's a pretty common like Zen understanding, right? And it's only when I'm not fully embodying the Dharma that I'm going to think that something is missing. And he's saying, no, that's not the case. No, it's the other way around. When you fully understand the Dharma, you're going to always realize something is missing. That is, that is deep realization. So then he gives an example about this. What, what could he mean by this? So he says, so for example, when you sail out in a boat, so you're in your boat and you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight, and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. Right? This is right. You, you sail on a boat, you're in the middle of the ocean, you look around, and it does. It kind of looks circular if there's no land around. And it doesn't look any other way. But he says, but the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at the time. All things are like this. 
And then he continues with this. He says, though there are many features in this dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look around or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. Hearing the importance of realizing that something is missing. So we have this image, you go out into the boat, the ocean looks circular, but it's actually not circular. But we do this all the time. I can have this feeling that my view is the correct one. Or what we find in this story with the wanderer and Ananda. Oh, this view is, only this view is true. All the rest are worthless. Only the view that the ocean is circular, that's the one that's true. The one, uh, other, other views are, are, not, um, are not true. And have you noticed we can walk around in the world this way? On so many ways, my view is the right view. But, but do you hear, hear what he's saying? When you t- tr- truly understand the Dharma, when you allow it to fill you, you understand that you're, you're never going to get to some view or explanation or perspective that's the real deal, that's telling you the truth. That's not what this practice is about. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you when we're two weeks in. <laughs> you came to the wrong place. What we're doing here is radically different. It's about freedom. A freedom that isn't even, doesn't even land on some view or some perspective. That's much broader than that. That's much freer than that. And it takes this embodiment to see that always my view, my perspective, my understanding, always something's going to be missing. Can you start to hear what this opens up when you can begin to embrace that? One is it's just a basic thing that I appreciate. It allows me to reside in a kind of humbleness. (laughs) But not only that, a kind of openness. I, th- I think of, uh, again, Rio Khan's simple poem. There's a bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Always there's something missing there. Oh, always, it's always new. Always something there fresh. Because I don't assume that now I have the complete picture. I'm always open to the next moment. Oh, anger's arising again. Oh, anger's just like this. Interesting. It feels like this this time. Interesting. Oh, the planning mind today? Interesting. It has a little bit more of a jagged quality to it. Oh, it has more of a slippery quality this morning. Oh, worry? Oh, interesting. Wow, I feel that. Now I actually feel it more in my stomach than in my chest, this kind of, this kind of rattling kind of quality. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, I I never get to stand on I know it in that way. 
And do you hear how this fits so nicely with this story I gave you, the story of liberating intimacy? Then each moment I get to be intimate. There's a demand to be intimate. There's a demand that I'm always liberating intimacy and not confining it by some concept. This might help to know the Dharma fills you when you realize that always something is missing. And then another thing that can help, another view that can help you break through views and stories. <laughs> and that's the construction of these. This is what the Buddha is so curious about, is how these, these, uh, these views are constructed. And he has a word for this. And actually, uh, Sally, I think in a few days, is going to talk more in detail about it. So I'm just going to generally mention it. In the commentaries, views or the, um, the entanglement with views is connected with this Pali word, uh, papancha. And papancha um, literally means, um, so punch, like uh, pancha silang, five, the, the five precepts, is five, and the pa means going out. So literally, it's, it means going out in five directions. And sometimes it's translated as um, proliferations of the mind or complications of the mind. You might have noticed this when, when just the complications that your mind makes around uh, with stories and views. This is kind of a flavor of papancha. And what can be helpful is to get this sense of of how, uh, how they unfold, how papancha begins to arise. And it can happen so quickly, how views can arise in an entangling way. I remember I was walking over to a friend's house uh, in Flagstaff, and it was election time. And I was walking down the street, and I passed a house that had a political sign in their front yard of a politician that let's be honest, I totally hated. <laughs> and it was amazing, right? Here it was. Here was the, the, all of the elements. There was seeing, and then there was the recognition of it, and then it was unpleasant. And then there was the papancha. Immediately, I thought to myself, man, these people who live in this house are just bad people. <laughs> I had never met the people in my life. <laughs> Who knows who was living there? They might have been the kindest people I would have ever met. I had already a view about them, and I had never met them. I didn't even know how many people were living in the house. It was amazing how quick it was. This is papancha. This is the unfolding of it, and these are some of the roots of it that we're trying to begin to see. Contact with the, the, the scene and the scene, the object, and then there's consciousness. There's a Vedna that's unpleasant. There's a few thoughts around it. Oh, this politician, oh, these people. And then there's the reactivity, the papancha. And again, I'm sure you see this around here. <laughs> it could be around something you hear, something you see, and then your mind's off to the races. There's another quality of um, interesting aspect of, of, of papancha that I want to point out. 
the Buddha asks in, in one uh, discourse, he says, seeing in what way is a practitioner unbound, clinging to nothing in the world? So seeing in what way, what kind of vision allows a practitioner to get to this point, as, as, as Greg was saying, to, to clinging to um, nothing whatsoever? It's a practitioner that puts an entire stop to the root of papancha. And the root of papancha is, I am the thinker. So how do we understand this? Really at the root of papancha is me. (laughs) That's what creates the complication. Maybe one story about this to exemplify this. So I want to have so many papuncha stories I could tell you. So I'm just going (laughs) to take a couple. (laughs) This was a papuncha story that happened on retreat. And just a little bit about how I navigated it. So it it, it might be helpful around this. And then we'll see how it's situated around me. I was on a concentration retreat. It was uh, for a month. And... There is, of course, there was this big encouragement to be quiet, and it was early in the morning, and I was sitting. It was it's one of those sweet sits, you know, where the sits I like, <laughs> you know, where the mind is kind of calm and hanging out with the breath. And in the middle of the morning, this fellow who was sitting right next to me, right next to me, very very close next to me, in the middle of the sit, he takes out his notebook. And he starts writing and flipping his pages as he keeps on writing. <laughs> and I thought, okay, Brian, just be patient. It's not going to... It must have gone on for at least a half an hour to 45 minutes. <laughs> and um, probably at the 15-minute marker, I'd totally be lying to you if I said it just kind of bothered me. It was driving me crazy. (laughs) And so this is what I had to go through in terms of when things get this intense for me. And this was a kind of papancha. I want to point this out. And one of the phrases I used was one of the ones that I shared with you a a, a little while ago. And this can help when I get stuck in this mind, which I say to myself, listen, Brian, do you, do you want to be right about this one in terms of some guideline about, about quiet? Or actually, do you want to be free of this? <laughs> Which is an important question for my mind because sometimes I feel like I'm going to be happier if I'm right. You ever notice this one? <laughs> it can be so seductive and it's such a trap. I needed to get that in place first of I'm invested in my freedom. I'm actually not invested in being right because it's just... It's, 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 it's a losing battle at times. And then the other thing I needed was actually self-compassion because my mind also around this can go down the road of, which sometimes can be helpful because it can lighten it, but other times it's a form of self-judgment, which is, Brian, you're being ridiculous. <laughs> There's something seriously wrong with you if you're getting this worked up about somebody riding right next to you. What I actually needed was self-compassion of like, ouch, this hurts. I'm actually having a hard time. And from, the, from maybe outside to another person, this might look ridiculous, but what matters is actually it's tough so that there's a softness to it. 
And then I, I begin to see the elements of it. I begin to see, get a sense of hearing and that it's unpleasant. And then I begin to see the world that, that my mind was, was uh, attached to. It was a world that had a fixed view of kind of guidelines for a retreat. Have you ever noticed your mind do this? It's like it, we say something up here and then all of a sudden your mind latches onto it. And then all of a sudden the, 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 the most evil people in the world are like other yogis or yourself. <laughs> because they sneeze or because <laughs> they come in late. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And, and it's because my world was ruptured. Right? That was the world that this mind was trying to create. A particular world. It's a world where everybody follows the guidelines. Just so you know, we don't live in that world. <laughs> we never will. And all that arises from that is conflict when, we, when we're so rigid about views. And then there was the view. That was the entanglement with the view that was situated on top of hearing and it being unpleasant. And situated on with the root of this is about my world. And within this, another thing that was very helpful is to remind myself, yeah, this is very unpleasant. This is real. This experience is real, but it might not be true. This is a phrase that the Venerable Sokni Rinpoche will use. And I find this very helpful around thing, papancha that's emotionally laden, views that are emotionally laden like this. I have to recognize, because sometimes if I tell myself this isn't true, I'm dismissing the experience. If I were to have said to myself, you know, you need to get over this. So this is not what I'm saying. It isn't the practice of you need to get over this or this is ridiculous. Because that's saying to myself, oh, this is not real and it's not true. But what I'm seeing is that it's real, that it impacted me. This is a, an impact that I need to honor. And I need to see that, that this perspective is not true. What you experience is real, but it's not true. So I hope you're hearing around this that the views that come up, the stories that come up in your in your on your retreat here, there's something rich about them. It just there's something rich about just noticing when the mind is planning, really noticing that. Oh, what's that like? It disappears immediately. It has an agitated quality to it in the body. And seeing that it's just a story, it's just a view. And with practice, the more we do that again and again and again, we learn to step out. We learn to become free of views and stories. Because it can be just that simple of what Ananda was doing. I do know. I do see. I see that it's just a view. As that story of the daughter and her mother. The daughter comes in one day after school and says to her mother, Mommy, I'd like you to pretend something. Mommy, I want you to pretend that you're surrounded by a hundred hungry tigers. Mommy, what would you do if you're surrounded by a hundred hungry tigers? And the mother thought and thought and was just actually a little bit surprised about this question from her daughter. She said, well, honey, I don't know what I'd do. What would you do? 
And the daughter said, I'd stop pretending. (laughs) 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 It's a good thing to stop pretending. (laughs) And sometimes it's that simple. To know and see, or to use the language Carol's been using, to recognize accurately. And at the same time, we're encouraging you to take up certain views, to ride the raft, to use it to cross over. We, we're, 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 we're sharing with you all these different actually kinds of views to have around experience, experiences that can help break through these views. Like I've just shared with you a whole, a whole host of views to help you break through views. And this is important also that this is where the, the practice begins. Like right view or wise view is, is also about ethics, about how, how we are in the world. The Buddha gives us strong encouragement to have this view that actions have consequences. Because when I have a sense that actions have consequences, then I care about the actions that I bring into this world. And I think what can start to arise from this practice and this value of, for example, having certain views is then there, there can be an approach, like just with ethics, that can be more fluid around story, around view. I'd just like to end, end with this because I think, uh, just one story about this, because I, I think in, in, in some ways, this practice is about being in the world in a different way, approaching things in a different world uh, way, which means really the ethical life. And hopefully what we're doing here is influencing that, how you are in the world, how you conduct yourself. I had a friend recently who she was in a relationship that she found very difficult that she obviously got out of, but it was a difficult relationship. She was with a man who was um, intimately touching her in ways she didn't want to be touched. And that boundary was not being respected. And I just want to name and you know, as a result of that and some other things, she got out of the relationship. But, but I appreciated how she reflected on the relationship and her role in it. Because this was a very easy situation, a simple situation where she could have gotten lost in the views that I'm right and he's wrong. Because in, in one level, that's really clear. Like what he was doing was actually illegal. <laughs> like there are laws about this. You can do... You do serious, hopefully you do serious time when that happens. And this is a view that we can have around this kind of situation and, and a very important view at times. So I'm not dismissing that. But what I appreciated is she didn't stop there. This idea that, oh, I'm right and he's wrong. But rather I had a curiosity of how am I being in this relationship What are the views and the stories that I'm holding that I'm entangled in around this? And on deeper reflection, really because of the way she wanted to be in the world, what she started to realize is, oh, actually, I also had ways of being or certain views that I was bringing to him. 
I was trying to touch him emotionally when he didn't want to be touched emotionally. She might have been touched physically in ways she wasn't wanting to be touched, but then she realized, oh, wow, I wanted him to be here emotionally for me, and he didn't want to. And I kept trying to push that boundary. Wow, so interesting. I had this view that, that, that he was supposed to be there emotionally for me, and I was going to demand that and break that boundary. I was so amazed by that. To me, this was a quality of integrity. This was the view and story that I was bringing into this. Not a way of, of, of letting him off the hook for his behavior, but just being true to her own behavior in the midst of a very difficult situation. And of course, it was a relationship she didn't want to be in for many different reasons. But it was this fluidity around story and view that allowed her to break through the rigidity that we can get into even in those situations. So may our utilization of, of, of views and this raft, this dhamma, really go towards so we can know and see, know and see in a way that liberating, that, that we can liberate intimacy itself through our retreat here. Let's sit for a brief while here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.